Please turn with me in your copies of God's Word to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. On Sunday evenings, we've been working our way through this letter from Paul, and it's thus far been a profitable study. And in Sean's absence, I'll press ahead in 1 Corinthians this week and next week, Lord willing. And for those who may be unfamiliar with the letter, or if you're like me, you struggle to remember from week to week what was preached last week, uh, I'd like to do a little review of what Paul has said so far to this church of God in Corinth. It'll be a little longer introduction than normal, um, but hopefully we won't have to spend as long introducing it next week. This letter was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth, which was a city in Greece that at that time was under Roman control. It was a very cosmopolitan city. It's full of money. It was the commercial center between two great seas. It was a, um, full of transient visitors, but it was also full of temptation. It was the home to the temple of Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love, and that temple was the center of all sorts of sensual enticements, all committed under the guise of being acts of worship to that goddess of love. And this is where the church was founded, in the shadow of this temple. Paul spent at least 18 months there in Corinth, we're told in Acts chapter 18, and he was their spiritual father. And as such, he takes great care to craft this letter to the church that was in trouble. It had problems. It had become disunited. Factions, tribes broke out among it. They were disrupting the church. Many of the members were acting prideful. They were judging one another based on their speaking gifts, judging based on their social status or their economic status. And they were even tolerating in their midst severe and public sexual sin. Sin so egregious that even the pagans would have blushed at it. And yet, there they were tolerating it. Major problems. And so Paul writes this letter. He began in chapter 1 with a customary greeting. And then he masterfully begins to focus the attention back on Christ. While at the same time laying different foundation stones to expose the Corinthians' sin. He begins in verse 10, what will be a long argument all the way into chapter 3 against divisions or factions within the church. Some in the church were apparently saying that they followed Paul. Some said, no, I follow Peter. Some said, I follow Apollos. And then the righteous ones, of course, said, well, I just follow Christ. And then all of these were stressing the young church. And so Paul, through a series of rhetorical questions, begins to show the folly of their divisions. He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Well, of course not, Paul implies, and so you shouldn't be divided. And then he moves into a series of wonderful arguments that all stem from the famous verse, verse 18. For the word of cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This is the controlling principle that guides the rest of chapter 1 all the way into chapter 3. The contrast here is between God's wisdom and the world's wisdom. God's message of the cross and the world's message of power and of eloquence and rhetoric. God's word of Christ crucified versus the world's word of eloquence and philosophy. And Paul goes on to point out how it was the simple message of the cross 
The message of Christ crucified was the only reason that the Corinthians were believers at all. It wasn't because they were of noble birth, not because they were clever or witty that God had made them to believe. It was God working through the simple, foolish message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And a simple faith in this simple message is what Paul built his entire ministry upon. That's what he starts chapter 2 talking about. Not on worldly wisdom, not on clever speech, not on enticing words, not on intellectual spinning or philosophizing. Simple, unadorned preaching of Christ and Him crucified so that their faith would rest not in man's wisdom, but in God's power. That's what he says. And that's what Paul's been doing so far in this letter. But let's briefly mention where he's going next. For the rest of chapter 2, Paul is setting up three different contrasts. Three different opposing parties or opposing viewpoints. The first we'll look at today is the contrast between those who receive God's wisdom and those who do not. Those who will receive God's wisdom of the cross and Christ crucified and those who will not. And the next two contrasts, which we'll look at in subsequent sermons, Lord willing, are between the Spirit of God and the Spirit of the world, verses 10 through 13. And the final contrast is between the natural person and the spiritual person. That's where Paul's heading, where we're heading. But before we get there, let's go to our text and read it closely. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 9. Hear the word of our Lord. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But, as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through his Spirit. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time. Holy Father, we come in need of your Holy Spirit to act and to work among us. We need you to open our eyes to see again the full majesty of your glorious plan of redemption. The plan that you decreed before the ages, the, the plan that you decreed for our glory, the, the plan to have a Christ crucified in the place of sinful people. Lord, help us to believe, keep from us distractions, help us to be focused on this Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Like I mentioned earlier, Paul has been, throughout this letter, making it crystal clear to the Corinthians that God's wisdom has nothing to do with man's wisdom. They're not even of a different kind. It's not a slightly more wise plan. It's totally opposed to man's wisdom. And Paul has intentionally rejected any of man's wisdom in his ministry philosophy. But... Lest Paul be misunderstood in saying that Christians have no wisdom at all in their message and that Christianity is just a religion of intentionally unwise fools, Paul now makes a sharp turn in his arguments. That's what we see in verse 6 where we'll see my first point, the wisdom of the mature. The wisdom of the mature. Paul says in verse 6 that we do in fact speak wisdom or impart words of wisdom. And this wisdom is to be found among the mature. And this word mature here has been the source of all sorts of confusion in church history. 
Paul's words have sometimes been misinterpreted to teach that Christianity, that Christians can be divided into two groups, those that are mature and those that are immature. With the mature, meaning those that have secret or special access to hidden knowledge, and the immature believers lacking that secret or special hidden knowledge. But such an interpretation is not only dangerous because it divides the church into the haves and the have-nots, but such an argument doesn't fit with what Paul is doing here. As will become evident later, the mature title must refer to all Christians. That is, those who have, by faith, embraced the foolish message of Christ and Him crucified, over and against those who have rejected the cross and embraced worldly wisdom. But we might ask, well, why would Paul use the, the word mature here to refer to all Christians in this context? Well, the answer is most likely that Paul's using the word mature because the Corinthians loved to apply that very word to themselves. They thought of themselves as the mature ones, as those who had a good grasp on theology and had a sound understanding of wisdom and doctrine. But Paul, Paul they viewed as the immature one, as the simple one, as the unimpressive one, the one who was great at first, but now he's kind of, we've moved past him. Now Paul does, in later portions of this letter, speak of Christians in categories of mature and immature, but here he is first challenging the categories that the Corinthians themselves were using. All Christians are mature in the sense that they have come to terms with the message of the cross, while others, by definition, have not. The message of Christ and Him crucified is the only fundamental dividing line within the human race. The wise of this age, the rulers of this age, act like they are the wisest ones. They think they're the ones with the insight, the ones with the intellectual acumen, the ones with the right view of the world and the right assessment of all of the world's problems. But in fact, by their disbelief, by their disbelieving in the message of the cross, they are demonstrating the exact opposite. They prove themselves to be fools and they will further demonstrate that their wisdom is worthless by their fate. What does Paul say at the end of verse 6? That the rulers of this age are doomed to pass away. That's the same language of chapter 1, verse 28. Their wisdom will be brought to nothing. It will be nullified. It will share the same fate that they have. It will pass away into nothing. And so the implied conclusion here is this. Why would you Corinthians put your hope and wisdom in something that's flawed and doomed to pass away? Even if the rulers of this age are influential now, even if they're impressive now, each of them is coming to nothing. And it demeans the church to be enamored with the applause of the lost and the dying rulers of this age. Why would you put your hope in things that are devoid of any eternal significance? Why would you Corinthians put your stock in such things that have no eternal value? It makes no sense. It would be the height of foolishness to evaluate according to worldly and fleeting standards. But that's exactly what the Corinthian church was doing. In claiming to be wise, they became fools. In boasting in their worldly wisdom and their values and their rhetorical ability and their eloquence, the Corinthians were actually evidencing that they had, become, they had succumbed to the worldly temptation of foolishness. They thought that they were the mature ones. They thought they were the grown-ups and that Paul was the infant. But the reality was that Paul's simple ministry of preaching Christ crucified in an unadorned, unimpressive, simple manner 
was actual maturity. And the Corinthian choice to clamor for the things of the world actually shows their immaturity. Or to use different words, they thought that they were grown-ups and that Paul was the childish one. But in thinking so, they proved that they were the childish ones. And this is where we need to be careful. We can find ourselves acting just like the Corinthians. Satan and our sinful flesh will both tempt us to believe that we're actually better off than we really are. In our pride, we can think that we are the mature ones and that everybody else are the ones that need to grow up. We've got our thinking straight. We've got our doctrine right. We've got our church in order. We've got our home in order, whatever it is. And they're the ones that need to get their act together. They need to straighten up. We find ourselves beginning to act like the Pharisee in Luke 18, who went to the temple at the same time as a tax collector. And the Pharisee prayed, God, I thank you. I'm not like these other people, the robbers and the evildoers and the adulterers, or even like that tax collector. You see, the Pharisee, the man that looked to all the world to have his act together, the man who knew how to read God's word, who knew how to worship according to God's standards, the one who, by all accounts, assuredly had godly wisdom and was mature, actually proved himself to be the infant. And why do I say that? Because the passage continues with the tax collector standing at a distance unable to even lift his eyes up to heaven. And he cries out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. To the eyes of the world, it was the Pharisee who was the biblically wise, and the tax collector was the fool. But that's not how Luke ends the story. Jesus says, rather, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the Pharisee, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. You see, the proud, those who consider themselves to be the mature ones, those who judge wisdom and gifts according to worldly standards, those are doing nothing but demonstrating their childish immaturity. They are, at best, babes in the faith when they act that way. While true maturity, true wisdom, looks like the tax collector who knew well of his own sinfulness. He knew he needed forgiveness. He knew he needed a Savior, and in his humility... He cries out to God for help. That's true maturity. Have you experienced this in your own life? Or do you tend to play the role of the Pharisee in the parable? As parents, perhaps you've had this experience. I know I have. You've proudly thought of yourself as the holy and mature one in your home, the one who needs to impart all of their wisdom onto the next generation only to have your child say one little word that will convict you to the core. Or perhaps in your pride, you have been absolutely sure of something. You would have bet money on it, only to later be proven wrong, and you had to eat a big slice of humble pie. Or maybe you find yourself like the Corinthians, pridefully judging others, Looking down upon others. How could they do that? How could they act that way? How could she dress like that? How could he spend his money in that way? Whatever it is. Judging people. And leaving behind you a wake of broken relationships and divided friendships. God's people have always had to believe a foolish message in order to be mature. Noah had to believe in a foolish message of coming judgment, and yet by his believing, he was saved. 
Abraham had to believe in God's foolish promise that he'd be given a son, even in his old age. And yet by his believing, he was counted righteous. Maturity in the Christian life doesn't look like speaking big theological words or always talking about high-level abstract philosophy. It doesn't look like the Pharisee with the proper dress and the proper speech and the proper prayers. Maturity looks like humble, simple, childlike faith in the message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified for your sins. It looks like crying out like the tax collector. And that's the good part of the gospel. The part of the good news is that everyone, from the youngest believer to the most seasoned saint, is mature if they humbly rest in Jesus Christ. Do you have this kind of faith, this kind of maturity? Or have you found yourself again playing the part of the fool, acting in immaturity according to worldly standards of pride and boasting in self? If you have, then I encourage you to consider Paul's message of Christ and Him crucified. That is the only way for us to receive forgiveness for our pride. Humbly believing the message that Christ died in the place of prideful sinners like me and you is the only way for us to have genuine maturity. It's not found in college degrees or reciting endless prayers or in giving away all your money or in any other good works. True maturity, true wisdom, godly wisdom, looks like simple trusting in Jesus Christ to forgive you of your pride. Come to Him, each of you, no matter how young or how old you are, and be made mature today through faith in Him. That's the wisdom of the mature. Next, we've looked at the wisdom of the mature. Now let's look at verse 7 and see the description of God's wisdom. The description of God's wisdom. Paul says, But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. The wisdom that is spoken among the mature is a secret and hidden wisdom, Paul says. Which doesn't mean that it's something we can't figure out, like a Rubik's Cube or a Gordian Knot. Nor is God's wisdom something that we have to dig around and try and piece together. When Paul uses these kinds of words of secret and hidden and revealed and manifest in the New Testament, he's usually talking about something that was hidden in the Old Testament that has been made clear in the New and made clear specifically because of the work of Jesus Christ. Something was hidden and now it has been revealed. Something was uncertain and cloudy and now it has been made certain and clear. And that's what God has done in the cross. He has taken his plan, which was decreed by him before the ages, Paul says. And he has revealed it to all of creation, what he had determined to do before the foundation of the world. That is the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, made a covenant in eternity past that the Son would come and he would be the Savior of his people. That he would live and die in the place of sinful people a people of the Father's choosing, and the Spirit would then come and apply the benefits of the Son's work to the hearts of His people. That's the mystery that was hidden. How could God choose for Himself a sinful people and yet dwell with that people forever in perfect sinlessness, in perfect holiness? How could He do that? How could God both forgive sin and yet remain perfectly just and righteous? And that's what he's revealed in the cross. 
God has become both the just judge and the justifier in Christ. He has both paid the sacrifice to atone and also become the atoning sacrifice. All of this is made clear in the cross, and that's the good news that remains hidden to the worldly wise today. Not to preempt next week's sermon, but the sinful man, the natural man, man in his natural condition, cannot understand the things of the Spirit. And so the glory of this plan of redemption is veiled to those that are perishing. They can't see it. And so that leads us to a significant point of application. The truth of this passage should then drive us to our knees in prayer. If the natural man cannot see the wisdom of God, if he cannot naturally comprehend God's glorious plan of redemption, then we must pray to God. Pray that the lost would see it. Pray that our children would see it. Indeed, that our efforts as a church would in any way be effective is only by God revealing His secret and hidden wisdom to the eyes of unbelievers through the work of the Holy Spirit. We have to pray. Furthermore, Paul says at the end of verse 7 that this wisdom was decreed before the ages for our glory. What a privilege. What a truth that God would choose before the foundation of the world a plan that would encompass every one of our needs, every one of our problems, and a plan that would ultimately result in our being eternally reunited with God in a world without sin and death and a curse a world without loss, without pain, a world that lacks everything unpleasant, though we deserved it all, and a world that possesses everything pleasant, though we had forfeited every bit of it because of our sin. What a privilege for us believers that this plan should result in our own glory, which is put in sharp contrast in this text, because it's placed right between the rulers of this age and what's their fate? They're being brought to nothing. And in the next verse, Christ, our Lord of glory. What a privilege it is for us believers to live in the new covenant era. We don't live under the old covenant. We don't live with mere types and shadows of a Messiah to come. We don't have to wonder how God is going to make good on all of his promises. We don't have to question how the Lord of glory is also going to be a suffering servant. We've seen it all on the cross. We know who the Messiah is. We see the wisdom of God in full display in the person of Christ. And we see the mysterious plan of redemption in glorious color at Calvary. Praise be to God for His glorious wisdom re revealed at the cross. And may we ever be grateful to live on this side of the cross. Let us not act as if the wisdom of God has been unclearly spoken to us. Let us not act as if we're unsure as to exactly how to go about salvation. We have the message of salvation and we can proclaim and should proclaim this message to a lost world with boldness. Let us press forward with full assurance and confidence in the Lord of glory and in the plan that he has revealed to us and in the wisdom of God seen in the face of Christ. This is, he is, God's wisdom revealed to us. Finally, We've seen the wisdom of the mature and the description of God's wisdom. Now let's look at verse 8 and see the identity of God's wisdom. Verse 8, the identity of God's wisdom. Paul says in verse 8, None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. 
Paul uses language in this verse of the rulers of this age, which sounds similar to when Paul speaks elsewhere of the rulers and the principalities and the powers of darkness of this age, talking about the spiritual forces that are at play in this world. But that's not what he's talking about here, as is made clear by the reference to them having crucified Jesus. Plus, we know that in the Gospels, multiple times when Jesus confronts a demon, that demon immediately knows who Jesus is. There is no demonic doubt about the identity of Christ. And thus, Paul's talking in this verse about the rulers of this age or those people in places of influence in the world, those people who appear to have all the worldly wisdom, the people that the world elevates as the smart ones, the clever ones, the witty ones. But Paul contradicts such an evaluation by saying that if they had any wisdom at all, they would not have crucified Jesus. They crucified him because they did not know him, and by not knowing him, they demonstrate their own lack of wisdom. We see this in the Gospels. In John 7, 28, Jesus is talking about the Pharisees and the chief priests. And he says, I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. Or again, in Matthew 13, 13, Jesus explains why he speaks in parables. He says, I speak to them in parables because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. You see, though they claim to have wisdom, they actually lacked both wisdom and the, the ability to see Jesus' true identity. If they were truly wise, they would not have crucified him, but they did. And thus demonstrated that they knew nothing of true wisdom. In claiming to be wise, they became fools. And this isn't just true of Pilate or Herod or Caiaphas. This is true of any person that rejects the message of the cross. To ignore and despise Christ's offer of salvation is to do no better than those men who sent Jesus to the cross to die. Indeed, to reject the Lord of glory's message of peace is to descend to foolishness, on par with the ones who were nailing Jesus to the tree. Consider again, throughout the Gospels, even the demons know who Jesus was. They have no doubt as to his identity, but at least they tremble. But to reject Jesus' identity as the Son of God, sent to be the Lord of glory through his sacrificial death on the cross, is to demonstrate a level of foolishness that not even the demons possess. Do not this day reject his offer. Don't stand in your foolishness and ignore the identity of the Lord of glory who died in the place of sinful men and women. Today can be your day of salvation. Today you can be made mature. You can be made wise. You can be forgiven of each and every one of your sins and washed clean. You can be restored, freed from the power of sin and death. And all that is needed is belief. Christ will give all of this and more to you if you come to him and confess and believe. Come today, come and believe, come and be made wise, come and be made mature. Come and embark on a journey toward your own glory that was made possible by our Lord of glory. And I'll close this morning with this. In verse 9, Paul quotes from Isaiah 64. He quotes a passage that many people have in cute cursive font up on their wall as an inspirational quote. And many think that Paul's talking about heaven, but he's not. 
They think he's talking about how heaven's going to be so wonderful that we can't even imagine what it's going to be like. And while that may be true, that's not what he's saying here. Paul is taking an Old Testament passage and saying that that passage has come to fulfillment. It has been made clear in the cross. Paul says, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, no heart imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. And what is it that no eye has seen, or no heart could ever imagine? It's the foolish message of the Son of God coming to be the Lord of glory and also the suffering servant for our salvation. That's the unbelievable story that God's chosen Son would also be God's chosen wrath bearer. It's the truth that the world hates and despises as utter folly. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God unto our own salvation. That's what no heart could ever imagine that God has prepared for those of us who love Him. All praise be to God. We will conclude this morning by visibly reminding ourselves of this simple message of the gospel. The same secret and hidden gospel that has been made clear in the cross because of the work of Jesus Christ. And that simple message is the bread and the cup, pictures of Christ's body and blood. His body was broken for our sins and His blood was shed for our forgiveness. This is the foundation, the simple gospel upon which Paul built his entire ministry and upon which we build our whole lives. Admittance to the Lord's table is restricted by Scripture to only those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. If this describes you, if you are disciples like those mentioned in Acts chapter 2 that were devoted to the apostolic teaching, now found in God's Word, devoted to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer, then we invite you to come. But if you have not yet come to faith and have not followed in obedience to Christ by being baptized, then please let these plates pass. Come to Christ and then you can join us at the table. I will pray and then our servants will come. Holy Father, we praise you and thank you for the wonderful wisdom, the glorious plan that you decreed before the foundation of the world that we might be restored, forgiven, renewed, reconciled, all because of Christ's work in our place. We thank you for these pictures that we see in this gospel again as we partake. We ask that you would take these elements and set them apart and build up your church through this wonderful picture, this glorious ordinance that you have given to us. We ask that you would be working in and through this, even now, through the foolishness of the bread and the cup. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Table servants, please come.